Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys this morning. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. And I wanted to take a second on the front end of this uh, and just say, man, how proud I am of you guys as a church. Uh, this last, really the last couple of weeks, I'm going to save some ammo for the State of the Communion address, which is coming up. Uh, you're like, State of the Communion? That's clever. I know. I know. It's, it's clever. It's our weekly series or our yearly series we do in August saying, like, where are we at? What's going on? Uh, so I'll, I'll save a couple of stories. But uh, last week, this last Sunday, we had our back-to-school bash, which is our annual school supply giveaway. Uh, we saw several hundred kids get free school supplies, and we had enough left over that we'll give some to the local schools uh, like we did last year. We had amazing hot dogs this year. If you ate some of them, we got about a we got about 100 of them left. There's three guys sweating over those things. Like, these were salty. That was just human sweat poured out on, onto those hot dogs. It was wonderful. Um, Something that was really neat, though, is that if you're here, if you served, or if you're here before, uh, all the folks who came for the school supplies, uh, you could tell who went to our church and who didn't. And uh, the folks who didn't go to our church all lined up outside of the fence uh, going into the parking lot because that's what we do with our other events, uh, particularly trunk or treat. And uh, one of our volunteers asked them, like, hey, what are you guys doing lining up on the fence? You know, you come in here and here's where the school supplies are. And they said, well, all the other things you guys do, we, we line up at the fence. So we figured this was just what, what we do. Um, which on the one hand, you could critique the church for communication, right? We need better signage next year. We need clear entrances. That's all true. But, but also it shows that the neighborhood has become used to this being a place where their needs can be met. Uh, this is a place that serves them and they're used to how we serve them. And it's, we've kind of become enculturated into the life of this neighborhood, which is super encouraging. Uh, and, and with that, we had, I'm not sure the exact number, it was more than 30 kids signed up for VBS from the neighborhood. So they came here to get school supplies, and then they signed up for our free vacation Bible school. And I just found out this morning uh, that we had over 200 kids register for VBS this year, which is up from about 130 last year. So it's a huge mess of kids. And what I'm even more encouraged about is we had 100 folks volunteer to serve at VBS. So there was one adult for every two kids, which is crazy. Uh, and also, I just learned about seven minutes ago that the kids raised, uh, I think, a dollar twenty short of nine hundred dollars. Uh, I'm like, how does that happen? You know, like little kids coming. Uh, I think it's because we did the guys and girls competition. If you're here, who could give more? But still, and that money's all going to go to renovate uh, kids' classrooms over on the other side of the building because we're kind of bursting at the seams. Uh, and so it's just it's so encouraging to me to see how our church has come together serving these kids. And uh, my kids are too young to go to vacation Bible school yet, but I sneak them in the back so we can sing. And this is just one quick story because I thought it was. I felt convicted, and I laughed at myself at the same time. Uh, so we came the last night on Friday, and if you guys weren't here, it was such glorious controlled chaos. Because on, on the one hand, you see like skillions of kids. This is, that's a sage phrase, skillions. That means a whole bunch. A whole bunch of kids waving their arms and going crazy, but not like going crazy running around. You know, like they're going crazy in their seat. And then uh, Pastor Jeremy, who is like the child whisperer, apparently, um, he has, I would almost say, supernatural powers over children. I don't know how he does it. But so I come in and people are singing songs and he goes, all right, kids, who's ready to do their memory verse? And I was just like, guys, in my, and this is in my spirit, right, in my head, because I'm just being encouraging outwardly. Uh, I was like, there's no way. Like, okay, Jeremy, read your verse and have all these kids just like run around being crazy. Uh, 
To me, it just seemed like a poor use of time with unrealistic expectations, <laughs> to be totally honest. And Jeremy's like, all right, kids. And then however many kids were there, like a hundred some kids, all start saying this Bible verse in unison. And they, they actually had it memorized. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think it's working. You know what I mean? And I was just so blown away. Uh, so thank you to the hundred some folks that served and for Kristen leading the team. It was a great week. And I think we really served our neighborhood well. So thank you guys. Ton of work. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just... That doesn't have much to do with the sermon other than to say I'm so proud of you guys and you make being a pastor a, a real delight and a pleasure because it wasn't just us trying to do something. So thank you. Uh, that being said, we have a hilarious story in the Bible today. Um, it, yeah, and as I was studying it, you know, it says that Jesus, they set up a trap for Jesus and he's in this kind of either or situation that, that we're going to talk about here in just a second. Um, and it just made me think about how much our culture loves drawing lines and labeling people. Uh, it's, it's often real subtle, and it's become kind of incorporated into what feels normal for us. How, just think about how often you're posed with an either-or question in life. Uh, and there's lots of simple ones, like, do you like chocolate or vanilla? Which I think is an incredibly revealing question. You know, where, where somebody stands, if it's a chocolate person versus a vanilla person, then you get the crazy person that wants a swirl or, or whatever. There's, there's the dreaded wedding question that you have to RSVP on, or if you're like me, you don't RSVP, and you show up to the wedding and just get what you get, uh, where they ask you chicken or beef, right, one or the other. One of my favorite questions that's going to be start asked in a couple of weeks, uh, are you into college football or pro football? Is it this one or that one? The one that makes most people uncomfortable, are you a Democrat or Republican? Because... We vote straight tickets now, I guess, which means you only vote for Democrats or you only vote for Republicans. There's no crossover. Uh, it's just all over the place. Day in and day out, we get all forms of either or kinds of questions. Uh, when, when you label somebody, it can be helpful. I don't know that it's necessarily done with uh, bad motives, like that's a chocolate person or that's a Republican, or, because the labels can help us feel kind of safe with somebody, or we get a sense of where they stand or, or what they might believe in. Uh, it can help us cut through chit-chat and discovering stuff. I can just put this label on them. Uh, but what, what's happening when we do this, I guess kind of at the core, is we're reducing somebody. Uh, we're reducing what it means to be a human being and all you've lived and all you are into this one label. And the, the danger there is reduction nearly always leads to some kind of destruction. So that's a helpful Turn a phrase to keep in your mind. Reduction leads to destruction. It happens in lots of ways. Uh, here's two that I thought of in this last week. Uh, the first, when we reduce somebody, uh, it often leads to us dismissing people. Re reducing somebody to a label is a way to marginalize them. And it's easy to dismiss marginalized people. So, uh, oh, that person's a fill in the blank. That, that person's a socialist, and I know everything I need to know about them. I don't trust those people. Oh, that person is a blank, and I don't trust those kinds of people. And so we, we reduce them, marginalize them, and it's easy to dismiss them, uh, to, to sever a relationship with them, we keep them over there. So on the one hand, we get a label, and it marginalizes people. On, on the other hand, uh, people who've, who've experienced that first one, who maybe are re reacting against being labeled, swing to the other side and reject any kind of labels. All distinctions are dismissed. And we see that playing out in our culture with gender, which seems strange that we would have to have this conversation. 
So now you can be a boy or you can be a girl or you can be both or you can be neither. You, you can be whatever you want because everything is everything and it, it doesn't matter what you are. You just be what you want to be and say who you want to think that is very confusing. And life ends up being a frustrating kind of swim up against the current because you're, you're always bucking against reality. And there's this interesting thing that, that we do as people where I, I think we fool ourselves into thinking we, we relate to God one way, but then we relate to each other in a different way. Uh, and I just don't think that's true. I think the way we relate is the way we relate. And we tend to do the same things to God that we do to one another in relationships. And, and so the one camp wants to simplify God, reduce him, and say he's only one way. And the two big camps that emerge out of this, and you could probably put some denominations real nice and neat in there. One camp says God is only love. He's only love. That's all you need to know about God is he's love. And then this other camp will say, no, 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 God is just, he's righteous, he's the king. And these are kind of the camps that you get to live in. God's been reduced into this simplified version of himself. Uh, the other camp likes to throw out distinctions altogether. And so you can say, you hear things like, all religions are the same, it's all the same God, believe what you want to believe. And this is where you hear people saying things like, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person. This story that, that we're going to consider today shows us a God who lives in the tension here between labeling people and dismissing all labels, between a God who loves complicated people because he himself is a little bit complicated. And, and I believe in the story, God is inviting us to learn how to live in the tension of a complicated life. And I think the, the key that he gives us, or this kind of beautiful virtue that we see in Jesus is this simple familiar word, gentleness. And despite its familiarity, I think most of us are incredibly confused on what it means to be gentle. So before defining it or explaining that word, I, I want to see how it plays out in this story. So the, the context of this in John 8 is a day lot like today in the sense that we're here, we're at church, we're coming to listen to somebody teach the word of God. And that's what these people are doing. They knew Jesus was a teacher, so they come to church uh, to hear Jesus talk. And I want you to take just a second and think about what are your expectations when you come to a church service? What are you expecting to happen? And not necessarily like, I have this profound, deep awakening of God's presence or something. I just mean in the practicalities. I'm going to come, we're going to sing some songs, someone's going to talk about the Bible, probably going to pray a little bit, and then we'll go to lunch afterwards. You know, this normal rhythm. Uh, these people are coming to a normal day for a normal event, and I imagine they had some expectations uh, some religious professionals show up, this group called the Pharisees, and that's not totally unusual in the ministry of Jesus. They were really mad at him most of the time. So the religious professionals show up, but they brought with them something unexpected. Uh, it's a woman, and the way she's described is not all that flattering. Verse 3 says, the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Uh, so there's lots that's left to the imagination in those verses. She, she was caught in the act of adultery. And then they brought her from being in the act of adultery to being in front of this crowd. So imagine we're here, I'm doing my thing. And then 
some of the staff comes with a woman who was just caught in the act of adultery and puts her up on stage. I think tension is probably a good word for what that would feel like for all of us. One moment she thinks she's in complete privacy, and the next she's standing in front of the church service, and everyone knows what she's been up to. The Pharisees cut straight to the point. Verse 4 and 5, Teacher, they said, this woman was caught, they say it again, in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, stoning meant uh, throwing rocks at her until she was dead. So they're saying this woman has broke the law and she should be executed. What do you want to do, Jesus? The, the text tells us they're trying to set a trap for him. They called him teacher because that's what he does. So here's, here's the trap. On the one hand, Jesus teaches the law of Moses. He, he upholds the Old Testament as the divine law and word of God. And that says we should kill this woman. But Jesus has also teached forgiveness and grace and love. So, Jesus, will you uphold the, the law of God, which you say is divine, and kill this woman and thereby contradict your own teaching, right? You're not forgiving because you just killed this woman. You're not gracious because you just killed this woman. Or will you forgive this woman, show kindness and love and grace to her, but contradict what you've taught about the law of God and it being divine and perfect? Either way, they'll have an excuse to discredit Jesus. And depending on what he cho chooses to do, they would be justified in killing him. This is the trap. This is the pickle they put him in. In response to this, <laughs> this is where it gets funny for me, uh, Jesus stoops down and he writes in the sand. Now, most people will have the same question at this part in the story. Anybody have a question they, they're curious about? Just shout it out. What did he write? Right? What did he say? It was the extra five commandments, right? Like to bring it up to 15 or it was the location of Noah's Ark, or uh, what was he writing? Uh, well, we don't know. And anybody who says they know is just purely speculating. Uh, and so maybe you're wondering, why is this in the Bible? Uh, the only one who knows that what Jesus wrote is Jesus. And the only one who knows why he wrote in the dirt is Jesus. And the simplest explanation for Again, we don't know what he wrote or why he wrote it. The, the simplest explanation, these are the things that make me love the Bible. Why is this in the Bible? Because that's what Jesus did. And his buddies are sitting there watching him. And they're like, did you see what he wrote? I didn't see what he wrote, but you saw him writing, right? He was down there. He was writing. Well, we should put that in. I don't know what he was writing. Why is that in there? Because that's just what happened. And so think about this scene. A woman who was absolutely mortified. And, you know, if these guys are willing to grab her, to seize her in the act of adultery, do you think they were like, hey, just take a couple of minutes, put some makeup on, put your church clothes on, because we're about to bring you in front of everybody, you know? Like, what condition is this woman in standing there? She's horrified. Everybody's uncomfortable, right? Because there's this religious confrontation, and there's this woman who was just busted 
fooling around with someone who wasn't her husband, and the, the crowd is ready to kill her, and Jesus is playing in the dirt. <laughs> it's a crazy scene. And while he's down there scribbling in the sand, the Pharisees are badgering him, demanding that he answers. Come on, Jesus, don't get out of this. What are you doing, Jesus? What do you say? What should we do, Jesus? Come on, let's see it. Let's see what you got. And so Jesus stands up and he says this. All right, but let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. <laughs> like first I admire Jesus's commitment to his drawing here or whatever he's doing. <laughs> you know, like he's like, I'm doing something down here, y'all. Um, but, but second, he knew exactly what to say to these men. It says, beginning with the oldest, the accusers started leaving one by one. Again, it's a fascinating little detail. The oldest left first. Well, why is that? Well, my experience, people in their 20s and 30s are never wrong. Have you noticed that? You conf- confront someone in their 20s and 30s, and they'll hem and haw and have all these explanations. And, but then... Older people have lived long enough to know they're just not that smart. Like, we're just not that good. We're just not that reliable. And, and the old people tend to be more willing, not always, but, but tend to be more willing to acknowledge their mistakes and their failures. And so the, old, the oldest start leaving, and Jesus is left with this woman in the, in the center of the crowd who was there for church. And he says to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And that, that's our story. I want to I clarify one part real quick and then talk about what, what does this have to do with gentleness. So first... Again, this is one of those passages that even people who don't read the Bible tend to have some familiarity with. And this, but he who has without sin cast the first stone is one of those verses that most Americans have memorized, even if they couldn't tell you where in the Bible it is or what's going on in there. And a a lot of people, Christians and not, will use this verse as a way of dismissing distinctions, um, especially regarding sin. They'll take Jesus's words to mean that only people with a perfect moral track record can say anything is wrong. No one's allowed to judge anything else as a sin unless they've never sinned in their life, is what people will take this to say mean from Jesus. Now, the, the, kind of the problem with that interpretation is the rest of the Bible. Uh, if that's what Jesus is doing here, it makes a real mess of the Bible because it's filled, Old and New Testaments, with warnings about sin, with encouragements to hold each other accountable for sin, uh, the benefits of restoring a brother and sister from their sin. Like all over, the Bible is like, y'all are in this together, and y'all have to watch over each other, y'all have to speak into each other's life. And it's it's just a real problem if in this one verse, Jesus is discounting more or less the rest of the Bible. That's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't saying you have to be morally perfect and have never sinned to say anything else is a sin or to call somebody else out. Think about the trap that's being laid here. So first, the law of Moses, which is what the Pharisees are appealing to for this death sentence. The the law of Moses requires that there's two witnesses before before a charge can be made. And then the, the burden of proof 
is so exceedingly high, especially in cases of capital punishment where somebody might be killed. The stories have to line up so precisely. Uh, For instance, I I came across the story of this old Jewish lady named Susanna who did something she shouldn't have been doing under a tree, and some folks caught her doing it. And in the trial, she ended up being acquitted because the two witnesses disagreed on the size of the leaves that were on the tree. The point in sharing that with you is to give you a sense of how high the burden of proof was. And uh, here's a little, I don't know, a free gift to go impress your friends with. Uh, There's this thing called the Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish interpretation and application. So if you want to know what did Jewish people think before the time of Jesus or after the time of Jesus about what this story or this thing meant, go look it up in the Mishnah. Uh, The Mishnah says that any court that executes somebody under the law of Moses more than once every seven years, they called not a court, but a slaughterhouse. So they don't kill people very often. They don't execute people very often. The burden of proof was high and it was very rare. So let's think about the story now. How hard is it for two people to catch someone in the act of adultery. And the, the text emphasized that she was in the act. Like They didn't see her leaving the guy's house. They didn't watch her flirting with him at the coffee shop. How, how tough it, would it be for two people to catch someone in the act here, which is what's required by the law they're appealing to? And take a look at the specific law under which the Pharisees are trying to execute this woman. It's from, it's from Deuteronomy 22. And put your critical thinking hats on and see if anything's missing in, in applying this law. It says, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Leave that up for a second. So in our story, what is missing? The, the dude, right? Takes two to tango, people. Like, So pay attention now. Let's think about what's happening. The text is already explicit that this is a trap for Jesus. Interestingly, we have two people that caught her in the act with stories in lockstep. And yet the man who the law demands be killed as well is curiously absent. I think the the clear explanation here is that they didn't set a trap just for Jesus. They had set a trap for this woman as well. And so Jesus, he's not denying the law of Moses. And essentially what he's saying is, you guys are breaking the same law you're trying to use to kill the woman. You're breaking the law of Moses to try to enforce the law of Moses. He's What about the law against conspiracy? Exodus 23, 1 and 2. You you won't conspire against your neighbor to pervert justice. What about the the law against partiality in Leviticus 19, 15? That you won't favor the rich or the poor, that you won't twist justice or try to set someone up in a trap and pervert justice. Jesus is not saying that he denies the law of Moses. He's saying that he denies their ability to be true and honest witnesses and executioners. He's saying, 
okay, we can kill her, but whoever's hands aren't dirty in this mess gets to throw the first stone. Whoever isn't a part of the conspiracy to get this woman to do this thing, whoever isn't breaking these other laws, why don't you go ahead and leave the, throw the first stone? And the oldest people know they've been busted. And so they leave first. And, and, and so this scene here, it, it shows us the tension of this simple word, gentleness. So Jesus' actions to the Pharisees show us one side of what gentleness means. Uh, in, in Proverbs 25, we're told that a gentle tongue can break a bone. You know, you don't have to scream and shout to get your point across. You don't have to scream and shout to be powerful. Jesus spoke softly. He didn't say much at all, asked a question. And he, he cut these guys to the core. He exposed them and he broke their resolve. Too many of us make the mistake of thinking that gentleness means weakness. Clearly not. Jesus stood up against a murderous crowd. He, he faced a trap and he navigated it with wisdom, with calm. You can't be gentle without being strong. So on the one hand, gentleness means calmly using powerful words to disrupt the comfortable. These men come all self-assured, all confident, comfortable in their position, and Jesus gently but powerfully flips their whole world upside down. They come expecting to be execute this woman, expecting to execute this woman. And they leave realizing they deserve to be executed as well. On the other side, his response to the woman kind of rounds out the Bible's understanding of gentleness. So on the one hand, gentleness means calmly using powerful words to disrupt the comfortable. But it also means using strength to comfort the disrupted. Proverbs 15 says a gentle answer turns away wrath. Gentleness is the secret ingredient in blending compassion and justice. It's, it's the key to breaking free of a life of labels and either-or decisions. So pay attention to what Jesus does with this woman here. Uh, it seems his options are to agree with the Pharisees and say she's guilty or be a God of love who forgives her. He can be just or compassionate. What does he do? Do you believe in a God who's just or a God who's loved? Do you believe in a God who's merciful or a God who is righteous? We live in these tensions where we feel like we have to decide one or the other. Uh, did you notice Jesus never disagrees with the law? Listen, I know that's what it says, but that's not really what Moses meant, okay? Here's what Moses was getting at when he, he said this. He doesn't do that. Uh, did you notice he doesn't comment on execution? It, if you have a conviction against capital punishment, whether or not the state should have the power to execute somebody for a crime they've committed, this is not the verse to go to if you want to try to argue that from the Bible. Because Jesus never says, hey, y'all, we should really do away with the death penalty. He doesn't comment on it at all. Did you notice he doesn't disagree with them about her guilt? In fact, he confirms her guilt. Did you see what he said at the end? He says, go and stop it. Leave your life of sin. Quit doing this. The danger of seeing God as only love or the goal of gentleness as only forgiveness is that it'll, it'll lead many of us to stop confronting sin, 
to stop naming sin, call it what it is, to downplay judgment or, or to neglect God's justice. And Jesus does none of this. He affirms her guilt. Part of gentleness is, is a, a principled firmness. It's, it's a strong grasp on what is actually true. And it's a willingness to name it, to call it out, to speak against it. But if all we have is justice and truth will crush people. Some of y'all know what that's like. Anybody been to a church or have a friend who is like, this is what's true, do it or don't. And they just grind you into the dust. Everyone around them feels guilty and anxious and condemned. Jesus doesn't crush this woman. Much the opposite. But he doesn't dismiss her sinful actions. If you've read the Gospels, you know in one place Jesus says that not a thing from the law would pass away until all is fulfilled. He didn't come to wipe out the law of Moses. He came to fulfill the law of Moses. He didn't come to take these laws away, but to fulfill them. Well, how can he set this woman free and still fulfill that law, though? How can he say, You're, you are guilty, this is what you've done, but I don't condemn you? How can he do both of these? She's not condemned, but the law demands someone else must be. And so the answer is Jesus. He can affirm her guilt and set her free because that is precisely what he came to do. 2 Corinthians describes the mission of Jesus this way. God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Christ affirms her guilt And yet he doesn't condemn her for it because her punishment will be given to Jesus. By offering himself, by becoming the offering for our sin, Jesus is at the same time compassionate and just. He's a God of love and a righteous God of justice. He can pronounce us guilty and also stay our execution. So which camp do you find yourself in? Are you the person who points out every flaw? Are you the person who demands perfection from everyone? Are you the person who crushes people with the law? Or do you only know a God of love and then dismiss sin altogether? Are you afraid that being gentle means being weak? Maybe you grew up watching... The Simpsons, and you feel like to be gentle just means we all are supposed to be Ned Flanders the rest of our life. Are you afraid that being gentle means you're supposed to be weak? Or are you afraid of what it would mean to actually be strong? Maybe you've never seen someone use strength in a way that heals and encourages and comforts. Gentleness is the glorious middle ground between being angry at every little thing and crushing people over it, and then on the other hand, never being angry about anything at all. It's being angry in appropriate measures at the appropriate time, and it takes great strength to be gentle. Another way you could think about it when it comes to power, gentleness is the subversive use of power for the good of others. You know that power can be used to heal and build and protect 
and preserve, not just crush, not just destroy. Jesus, like we said in the, the Apostles' Creed, is the Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. He's created all things and he holds all things together. In other words, he's very powerful. But in his life and ministry, do you see how he almost always goes around the back door with his power? He never comes at it straight away. He asks questions. He draws people out. He's subversive. And he uses his power for the good of others. Why? Because he's gentle. Gentleness means knowing that every bruised and wounded person must come to Jesus. He's the place where healing and wholeness and forgiveness can happen. Gentleness means using our power not to crush, but to bless and encourage and heal. Gentleness means receiving grace, not as a license to do anything, but as an invitation to change. It means knowing that every word of grace brings with it a challenge to obedience. I don't condemn you. Now go change. I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. But this has got to stop. And it's in the man Jesus that we see just what this looks like. In Jesus, we see God is love. And in Jesus, we see that God is just. He doesn't have to be one or the other because he's both. And in Jesus, we've seen how he resolves that tension. In Jesus, our guilt is affirmed and our sin is named. But in Jesus, our execution is stayed. We are set free because in my place, condemned he stood. God is both loving and just because he's gentle. And so we come to communion to receive this good news once again, to experience it. And we see the gentleness of Christ on display in the sacred meal we participate in. You notice the, the amazing depth of the word of God, where it says, on the night he was betrayed. You notice it didn't say, you can go look it up. It doesn't say, on the night his friends kind of messed up. Or on the night that his friends were really tired, it had been a long week, and they had kind of trust issues stemming from their family of origin. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't dismiss the responsibility, but it names their sin. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. It's really important that we don't miss those last couple words, for you. You know, Some people who want to dismiss distinctions and do away with sin will say things like, the cross of Christ is God showing what happens when sinful people get their way. What will sinful people do? They'll kill an innocent man. What does God do to the righteous? He raises him from the dead. And so Jesus is a picture of what God thinks about sin and whatever. The cross is not an abstract execution. The forgiveness of God is not this abstract picture. It says it was broken for you. Jesus' body was broken for you to pay for your sins, the condemnation you deserve. But instead, he receives the punishment that we deserve. And so we come to this bread to remember his body was broken for me. After the meal, he, he takes a cup of wine and he said, take this cup and remember my blood shed for you. This is what seals your relationship with God. What makes us safe? What makes us at peace with God? It's his blood shed for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I understand how compelling it is to say things like all religions are the same. Um, 
All gods are the same. There's many roads up the mountain. They all lead to the same place. Uh, my first encouragement would be to go spend like five or ten minutes reading what these other religions have to say. And you'll find that they don't say the same things. What you will find is that no other religion would dare claim God died for you. Every other religion will say, here's the things you have to do to know God. Here's the things you have to do to be pleasing to him. Here's the things you have to do to live a good life. Here's the 17 ways that you can be gentle. Here's the 37 ways that you can have a better marriage. Here's the 16 things you need to, on and on it goes. They will crush you with rules and regulations to follow. Jesus comes and he says, you are so much worse than you believe. You're so much worse. And he knows it and he names it. And he says, but I don't condemn you. Why? Because I love you. And I'll show this to you. You have evidence of God's love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You can search the world and only Christianity offers you a God that would bleed for you, that would both name your guilt and make payment for it. That would both say you are guilty and set you free. What will you do with a God who loves you this way? What, what will you do to a God who says, this is what I'm like? Will you come to me? The invitation for you, if you don't know Jesus, is to come to Jesus and see there is no God like him. He is the true God. And at the same time, you know Christianity is the only world religion that says you can know whether or not God loves you? It's a popular idea to say, well, all religions are about love. I'm just going to tell you a secret here. As a professional religious person, no, they don't. Christianity is the only one that says you can know God loves you. How do you know? Because Jesus died for you, and he'll adopt you into his family. What will you do with a God like that? What will you do with Jesus who died for you, who is compassionate to you, who is gentle with you? So my brothers and sisters, if you're here and you're a Christian, what is Jesus doing to you in this story? Which camp are you on? You know, I was, I was talking with another pastor at Sojourn the other day, and I was like, man, do you think that we'll just stop being angry one day? We see what it is. We know that we're kind of justified in being angry, and we're in therapy, and we're memorizing our verses, and we're still angry. Now, I, right now where I'm at, I tend to be angry about every little thing. And so I see Jesus coming here to these guys who are twisting the law, and he's so soft with them but he's still so strong with them. And I see that and I want to be that. Maybe you're the kind of person that just doesn't want to confront anything. You know you've got situations in your life and in the lives of people around you that God's calling you to press into, but you don't because you're scared of being strong. Where, where are you in this story? Now, I would encourage you to try to name that. And then as you come forward to participate in communion, hold that up to Jesus. See, when we come to him, the promise of the scriptures is that we will become like him. So wherever you are, we find the middle ground, not by pursuing gentleness, but by pursuing Jesus. And he will make us that way. Our tradition at Sojourn is to tear off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. And you can use whichever you'd like. And we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Uh, and there'll be stations in the front as well as in the back. I'll pray for us. And then uh, Christians, you can come participate in communion as you're ready. Let's pray.